starting in chapter 9, and this is directly after the blind man was healed by Jesus, and starting in verse 8, it says, The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how are your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Shalom and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the, to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him, How has he received his sight? And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How, much, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself." His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 7, and I pointed out that this is a picture of God's sovereign grace in action. In chapter 8, Jesus was dealing with those who had hard hearts, and even though he plainly said that he was the Messiah, he was the Christ, they did not believe him. And then in chapter 9, as the Jews were getting ready to stone him to death, Jesus left the temple and immediately saw this blind man um, sitting there begging, and Jesus walked up to him and healed him. Now, this does not just, this, this story as we looked at last week, does not just apply to this blind man, but it applies to every sinner found by Christ. This story is our story. We were once blind, but now we see. And here's some examples of how this runs parallel to, to our story. The blind man was on the outside of the temple, and he had to be on the outside of the temple because of his blindness. He could not go into the temple to worship God. In essence, he was separated from God. The temple represented God's presence. And this is true of all sinners. We are separated from God because of our sin. The blind man was not searching for Jesus. He was not calling out to him. Um, and he did not see Jesus as he was coming near to him. 
And it's just like us, as Paul says in Romans 3.11, no one seeks after God. And Isaiah 53.6 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. If we are to be found, the shepherd must come and find us. Third, the blind man was blind from birth. And we looked at last week that we are all, we are all born into sin. We are all born spiritually blind from birth. Fourth, the blind man was not able to help himself out of his condition. There's no way that he could fix his eyes or help himself to, to see again, just like we are unable to help ourselves out of our lost condition. Fifth, the blind man was a beggar. He was unable to contribute to anything. He had to rely on the charity of others. And in the same way, as sinners, we are unable to contribute to fix our condition, our sinfulness, our bondage to sin, our blindness, and we must rely upon the grace of God. And finally, six, the blind man wasn't searching for Jesus. And uh, in that same way, a spiritual blind person, a lost person, doesn't even know they're lost. They're blind. And they don't realize they need a Savior. You would think that the world would be calling out for a Savior, but they don't because they don't believe they need saving. That's their blindness. So if the blind beggar stands as an illustration of God's people in the way that we are saved, then the section that we just read should continue that parallel to understand the, the Christian life. So here we see how Christ takes a man with a small childlike faith and makes him into a bold witness for Christ. So let's look at verse 7 as we get started in this section. Verse 7 says, Jesus told the man, go wash in the pool of Shalom. And then John adds this little parenthesis, which means sent. That seems to be significant. And then it says, so he went and washed and came back seeing. Just one simple little phrase there, he came back seeing. And as we, as we look at this verse, we can understand that I think the reason why John is making such uh, uh, a point about the pool of Shalom meaning scent is that that pool has a historical background, and it, it, was, a, it was a pool that was fed by uh, a spring of water. Another way to say that from a, a biblical phrase is living water, running water. And the pool's name meant scent, which likely served as a reminder to Israel that they were look to look for one who would be sent by God, who would be a spring of living water water. So that pool was a constant reminder for Israel to watch for their Messiah. So it's no mistake that Jesus sent the man to the pool of scent to wash his eyes. And um, that's a picture of when a sinner comes to Jesus, comes to the source of living water, that their blindness is cured. 
This is what John Newton said in Amazing Grace in that line. He picked up on this particular story, right? I once was lost, but now I'm found. And then the parallel thought there, I was blind, but now I see. And so this is not just a story about a blind man. This is our story as well. Now, when the man came back to his neighborhood, seeing it all, right, I'm sure that he wasn't really quiet, was he? He probably was yelling, I can see, I can see, and it created quite a stir. And when a person, and you can understand that, when a person goes through this kind of a, a change, uh, that person cannot be silent about it. That's why some of the best witnesses for Christ are new converts, right? They're excited. They have just experienced the miracle of the new birth, and they want to tell everybody. They still have that excitement and zeal that comes from being changed. Now, in verses 8 and 9, we see that the blind man creates kind of a stir in his neighborhood, starting in verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. So clearly, the neighbors saw the difference. They were used to seeing this man begging in the streets. They most likely had walked by him hundreds of times. But now they see him walking unassisted. Nobody's helping him. He doesn't have a stick or anything. But he is running through the streets unassisted. Clearly, his sight is restored. And this sparks a debate among the neighbors. Some of the neighbors in, insisted that this is the man who used to sit and beg. Now think about that. Used to, that's past tense. I love that past tense. He used to sit and beg. Well, how long ago was that? About 15 minutes earlier, right? Here's a man who used to sit and beg. But there is such a radical change in this man's life, that he could no longer be described as a blind beggar. Now, some of the neighbors insisted that it wasn't really him, just someone who looked like him. But the blind man kept saying that I am the man. And when we are made alive in Christ, when our spiritual blindness is healed, when we are born again. There is a radical change that takes place. When we believe the gospel, and Paul said the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, right? When we understand what Christ has come to do, to die on the cross for our sins, to raise again from the dead, and when we trust in him and believe what Christ has done for us, we are radically and forever changed. And in just a split second, we go from being a sinner, blind and lost and under the wrath of God, to a saint cleansed of our sins and made to walk in newness of life. And when that happens, there is a radical and mostly oftentimes visible transformation that takes place. Arthur Pink wrote, when a genuine work of grace had been wrought in a soul, it is impossible to conceal it from our neighbors and acquaintances, right? 
in one respect, we are still the same person. Unfortunately, even when we are born again, we still have that old man that, that we, we carry along with us. That hasn't been taken away. But there is, in addition to that, the new creation, a new creation in Christ. We are given a new nature. We are changed. We are given new, des- new desires where we, before we did not care about God or the glory of God, and now our eyes have been opened, and now we focus and live for God's glory. And it changes the way that we live. It changes the way that we think. It changes the way that we talk. Paul describes this change in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. To some, this moral and spiritual change will be so radical that those who knew that person before will not be able to recognize that person as the, as the same person. And the only way to describe that person is in the past tense, right? What they used to be, not what they are now. You can hear this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, when Paul is talking, uh, writing to the church at Corinth, talking about what they once were. He says, Or do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor rivals, rivalers, uh, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And notice what he says next. And such were some of you, past tense. As such were some of you. That can no longer describe them that way because they have been changed. They were that, but they no longer are that. But he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. That is the power of the gospel. So this is what you were but you are no longer, just like the blind man used to be a blind beggar, but he is no longer that because Christ has healed him. And so those around him did not recognize him because of the radical change that took place in his life. Now all of this controversy gave this newly healed man an opportunity to witness to the power of Christ. In verse 10 and 11, it says, So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus. He made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Shalom and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Now this man did not have a whole lot of information about Jesus, did he? At this point, he had never even seen Jesus because he was blind. He went to wash, and he came back, and Jesus is gone. So he's never seen him. He only heard him. And all he could say is that his name was Jesus. This is a man named Jesus. That's all I know. And he made mud. Notice he didn't say anything about Jesus spitting on the ground. Likely because he didn't see it, right? Right? We know that's what Jesus did, but he didn't see it happening. All he knew was that there was mud that was put on his eyes. The only thing that he knew 
was that Jesus made mud, anointed his eyes, and told him to go wash in the pool of Shiloh. So he said, I went and washed and received my sight. Now here, his emphasis was on Jesus, wasn't it? The man Jesus, he made mud. He sent me to Shiloh. So he focused on Jesus. Very simple faith. He didn't know much about Jesus. But he did bear witness to Jesus, even in that simple childlike faith. In verse 12, they said to him, where is he? He said, I I do not know. Jesus was gone. He came back, and he was gone. And it appears as we read this section that Jesus' absence here was an occasion for this man's newfound faith to be tested and to be strengthened. And so it's not uncommon, it's not an uncommon occurrence for believers. It's not uncommon for us to face tests, to go through trials. And the Lord does this so that we would be strengthened, that our faith would grow and that we would learn to trust him more and more. I used to read Oswald Chambers a lot, and, um, and I recall Oswald Chambers had said a lot about a newfound faith, and I did find one on October 31st, and he says much more in some of his other entries. But this is what uh, Oswald Chambers says in his devotion, Up My Utmost for His Highest, in October 31st. He says, we have the idea that God rewards us for our faith. It may be so in the initial stages, but we do not earn anything by faith. Faith brings us into right relationship with God and gives God his opportunity. God has frequently to knock the bottom board out of your experience if you are a saint in order to get you into contact with himself. God wants you to understand that it is a life of faith, not a life of sentimental enjoyment of his blessings. Your earlier life of faith was narrow and intense, settled around a little sunspot of experience that had as much of sense as of faith in it, full of light and sweetness. Then God withdrew his conscious blessing. Where's Christ? I don't know. He withdrew his conscious blessing in order to teach you to walk by faith. You are worth far more to him now than you were in the days of your conscious delight and thrilling testimony. Faith by its very nature must be tried. And the real trial of faith is not that we find it difficult to trust God, but that God's character has to be cleared in our own minds. We come to know God more through these trials. Initially, when we have a new faith, we have an excitement, but it is a shallow faith, and God must take us through tests and trials to deepen our faith, that we're not living on the emotions and and on the surface things, but we have a deep new understanding of the character and nature of God. So God does not really want us to operate under the initial euphoria and excitement when we first come to faith. Well, he, he gives us that, and that's a good thing, and it, and it lasts for a short time. But then comes the trials. 
and the testing, always to make us stronger. Now, this is what happened to the blind man. He's had his initial excitement in, he- in being healed and yelling into the street, I can see, and causing quite a commotion. But now he's getting ready to be plunged into a trial, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. And in fact, I don't think it's an accident that Jesus appears. He will. We'll see this probably next week. Jesus reappears after his trial is over. And his trial is over when this blind man is kicked out of the synagogue. Think about that. He's kicked out of the synagogue because of his witness for Christ. And then Jesus comes back to him, to strengthen him. So it seems like this trial really was about whether he was willing to stick with Jesus or to play it safe and stay in the good graces of his neighbors and particularly of the religious leaders. Um, And one of the purposes, as we'll see, there's a little clue here of this trial, was to deepen his faith in Christ, to help him to understand more of who Christ is was and is. So his trial really began in verse 13. Look at this. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. So now he's dragged in front of the Pharisees. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So it went from kind of a cordial conversation among the neighbors, trying to convince them that he was the same man, to really kind of a a trial in some respect. Probably not a formal one, but he was put before the Pharisees. Now, why did the Pharisees get involved? Well, we knew that the Pharisees were already trying to get rid of Jesus and stone him, and they were trying to find a way to do that. But verse 14 really gives us the clue why the Pharisees were involved, because Jesus did this miracle on the Sabbath day. As we keep reading about Jesus' miracles, sometimes I wonder if Jesus just held back the miracles until the Sabbath day just to poke the Pharisees in the eye, right? And in their eyes, then, because Jesus made mud and he performed a physical miracle like work on the Sabbath day, that Jesus was guilty, at least in their eyes, of breaking the Sabbath. Now, a case can be made that John 9, and we mentioned this last week, in a way parallels Genesis when Jesus made the mud, spit on the ground. It parallels when God made man from the dust of the earth, right? But here, it seems to parallel Genesis, but it also, it also is, a, in a very real way, gives us a new Genesis. Something new is happening here. So as Adam was made from the dust of the ground, Jesus made the mud to heal the blind man. In a, in a way, he is, with this miracle, reversing the curse in creation. Blindness and suffering and 
all the things that happened to us was not God's original plan and creation. These things happened because of the fall, because of sin. And now Jesus is taking the mud that originally made man, the, the dirt, and now he's recreating. He's beginning a new creation. Another parallel is that when we see the man's eyes were open, it was because he was healed of his blindness and he was healed of his sinfulness, right? He was forgiven. When Adam and Eve's eyes were opened, it was the opposite. It was because they were plunged into darkness and in the bondage of sin. And it is likely that the fall of Adam and Eve took place on the Sabbath. And scholars thank this because it was the day that that man walked with God in the cool of the garden, which points us to a Sabbath rest. They were to work for six days, and on the seventh day they would rest, and that would be the time when they would walk with God and commune with God in the garden. It was on that day that Adam and Eve fell, and here Christ is reversing the curse and making a new creation on the Sabbath. So, God, so Christ is restoring the world by bringing about a new creation. But the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a sinner because he worked. He made mud. He healed on the Sabbath. So verse 16, again, it says, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. This is about as closed-minded as you can get. Again, it illustrates the hardness and blindness of a man's heart apart from the grace of God. Jesus made the blind man see, and it's obvious that the only way that that can happen is through the power of God. And yet, because he healed, did something only God could do, and he did it on the Sabbath, they, conclude, they concluded that he was not from God. Now, what did we learn? What did we learn about the Sabbath day from Jesus, from healing and doing those things on the Sabbath? I mean, the Sabbath law says, thou shalt not do any work on the Sabbath. But this is not taken, even in the Old Testament, as an absolute without any qualifications. For instance, Jesus did not sin when he made mud and healed on the Sabbath because Jesus shows us that the work of necessity and the work of mercy, they are permitted to be done on the Sabbath. That's why the priests in the temple could work on the Sabbath day because it was out of necessity that they worked. So they weren't guilty of breaking the Sabbath, so the priest could do his work, but also works of mercy, like helping someone in need or even helping an animal that has fallen into a ditch. I mean, I used to preach a long time ago in rural, rural Oklahoma, and the farmers used to come in the next week after they missed church and said, sorry, preacher, my ox was in a ditch. <laughs> that was their way of saying, I had an emergency, I had to do something. And so, you know, but that was an exception to the Sabbath keeping. If your ox fell in a ditch, you could work to get them out and not be guilty of breaking 
the Sabbath. So Jesus was not guilty of breaking the Sabbath, even according to God's law, but they were guilty of breaking the Sabbath according to the rules of men. The Pharisees made up those rules. Have you ever ran across Christians that, or people, a group of people that make up rules as if they were rules from God and call you a sinner and despise you because you break their rules, not God's rules? It happens all the time. still happens. But these were the rules of men. And Jesus even at one point said that that's what you guys do. You, you are teaching the rules of men as if they were the rules from God, the laws of God. So in their mind, since Jesus broke their rules, he was a sinner. But it's really neat in verse 16, not every one of the Pharisees agreed, did they? Some of the Pharisees said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? So it wasn't all the Pharisees. We know that in the book of Acts, I think I've mentioned this before, but in the book of Acts we find that there were a whole group of Pharisees that became Christians. They were still struggling a little bit of how to apply the law and all that, but Pharisees became Christians and were part of the church. We see that in Acts. I can imagine that maybe one of those dissenting voices might have been Nicodemus. Think about that. Whoever spoke said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? You remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night? What did he say to Jesus? Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with them. So there was a group, Nicodemus and others, who were not quite convinced that Jesus was a sinner and that he was indeed the Messiah. And so the Scripture says, and there was division among them, as the Puritan Bullinger said, all divisions are not necessarily evil, nor all concord and unity necessarily good. The church needs to understand that. It's not unity at all costs. It was good that there was division. Those who called Jesus a sinner needed to be opposed. And it would have been bad if all the Pharisees concluded that he was not from God. That would be a lie. That would be a bad unity, an evil unity. So it is never good to have unity that is devoid of the truth. Now, in the midst of their division, I guess they needed to hear the story again. <laughs> they asked the blind man again in verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? Isn't that interesting? Put him on the spot. What does he know? He, he knows that these are very powerful men. So there's a lot of pressure here. He knows that these men, these powerful men, don't want anybody saying anything about, positive about Christ. So here's his trial. He's put on the spot. How, what is he going to do? How is he going to confess it? And he said, then, he is a prophet. Um, do you see the progression? Now, he's not saying he's just a prophet. We, we, we know that there are people like Islam and 
and others who will confess that Jesus was a prophet. He's not just a prophet, but you see the progression of this man's faith? He first said, the man, Jesus, and now put on the spot, what do you say about him? He is a prophet, meaning he was sent by God. That was his confession. And so his faith is growing. And it's true that Jesus was a prophet, not just a prophet. Jesus was also a priest and a king, but he's in the, and the son of God. But this man was beginning to discern that this was no ordinary man. There was something different about him, right? And so the trials and, and the forced witness that he had to, that, that he was placed before his neighbors initially and now before these very powerful men, his resolve, his faith, all increasing, making him stronger willing to stand. Here he is, a blind beggar, has no money at all, and here he is willing to stand against some of the most powerful people in their culture. So, he confessed that Jesus was a prophet. Now, this is not the first time in John that we see that Jesus was called a prophet. You remember the woman at the well, 419? Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet after telling her all the things that she had done, right? John 6, 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this, indeed, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And John 7, 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet they were looking for, the Messiah, a prophet, one sent by God to come into the world. And so this blind man was giving a good confession. He really did understand that Jesus was sent by God. Arthur Pink again writes, these references are in strike, striking accord with the character and theme of this fourth gospel. A prophet was the mouthpiece of God. And the great purpose of John's gospel, as it intimates, is in its open verse, is to portray the Lord Jesus, or in that opening verse, verse 1 of chapter 1, to portray the Lord Jesus as the Word, the Word of God. Now this next section, section here shows how intimidating the Pharisees could be, and so they call his parents as a witness. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind. There's no way this could have happened. It's kind of like the modern naturalists, right? That read the Bible and say, oh, let's throw out all the miracles. We know miracles can't happen. And here are religious people who have read about all the miracles in the Old Testament. They should be believing in miracles, but they didn't. They were really just unbelievers. They, had, they did not believe he was born blind. There's, this kind of miracle does not happen. It cannot happen. And so they didn't believe, it says, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Well, the answer is obvious, but that's not the answer that they wanted. 
His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, they said, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Now why did they say that? Well, John tells us in a little parentheses here. He tells them why they said that. They weren't willing to come out and say, yeah, Jesus healed him. They weren't willing to make that confession. First of all, they weren't really believers. They understood what was at stake, right? And what was it? His parents said, that's what John tells us, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. Don't you think the blind man had that same fear? Wasn't he tempted to tamper down his witness to Christ, and yet he found courage? But they said this because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And we say, okay, fine, you're thrown out of church, right? Well, you need to understand this culture. If you're thrown out of the synagogue, you would not have a place in the community. You would be shunned by the community. So a lot was at stake here. They didn't want to confess that Jesus healed them. They didn't want to put their neck on the line because they knew that if they did, they would be thrown out of the synagogue. And John says, therefore, his parents says, he is of age, ask him. So they passed the buck. Um, so this really does show you how intimidating the Pharisees could be which really highlights for us what is required of every Christian we live in a country where you know it's, we've been relatively free and we've enjoyed not facing persecution but if you want to be honest with yourself, those days are coming to a close. Matthew 10, 32-33 says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So in the face of fear and intimidation... Even in the face of torture or death, Christians need to have such a faith that it will not waver. We will stand firm and make a good confession to our faith in Christ. Now the reason I say our days, that these days may be coming to a close, that all we need to do is look to our neighbors to the north in Canada. You realize in the last few years, preachers of the gospel have been thrown in prison, in jail, for simply meeting and worshiping God together. One pastor has been thrown in jail over and over again. He went and spoke to churches in the United States, and when he came back and got off the plane, they arrested him on the spot. A few days ago, this same pastor was going down to strengthen the truckers who were standing for freedom. And he gave a speech of encouragement to these truckers. And the Canadian government arrested him as if he were a 
domestic terrorists. And according to his son that I watched an interview with, his son says that he has not been charged with anything, nor does the government now under this emergency law have to charge him with anything, and they can now hold him and keep him indefinitely. His son said he did was able to talk to his dad. They put him in a small little cage like a kennel. And when he tried to go to sleep at night, they would make noise and flicker the lights off and on. Torture. This is, this is happening right now. He is in prison right now, just to our north. And if you don't think that that attitude, those things can come down into the United States, we need to really rethink that. The question is, if you're arrested... Are you willing to make that confession? Christians have been tested this way for 2,000 years. We can read about some of the Christians in the 2nd and 3rd century under the Roman Empire. Some of them stood firm. They were thrown to the lions and they happily laid down their life for Christ. But we read about also a lot of others who disavowed their faith, who went away from the faith for fear that they were going to be tortured and killed. We're not used to thinking in those terms. We think this sometimes this is hypothetical. But this is our task as Christians, that whether we live or whether we die, we bring glory to God and we confess what, that Christ is the Lord, as Jesus taught us. Don't fear the one who can just kill the body but fear the one who can both throw your body and soul into hell, right? And when we think about this pastor and other pastors in Canada who have been willing to be thrown into prison and be tortured, it should remind us of the great faith hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11, right? I mean, that's a long text, and I won't read all of it, but if you start in verse 32 of Hebrews 11, it says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me to, to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Okay, we see all the conquering, but notice what he now says. Some were tortured, refused to accept release, so they they might raise again to a better or rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. This is the Great Faith Hall of Fame. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And then he says, of whom the world was not worthy. 
wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What, what does that mean? That they, they understood that God had a promise. They didn't see the promise, but they lived according to that promise, and they were willing to be tortured and to die for that promise. And they understood that it was important for them to continue in the faith so that the generations would, to come would be a part of it. They were serving us as they did it. You know, the problem I heard recently, the problem about modern Christianity and modern evangelicals is we no longer really think long and hard about our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And the reason we really don't is because we think we're going to get evacuated out of here, right? And we don't think in terms of long-term. But how we respond to faith, how we are continuing the faith, how we do that will be passed along to our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. We remain faithful so that that faith can be passed along to the generations to come. We're not just serving ourselves. We're serving the generations that are going to come after us as we serve the Lord together. Now, how do we get that kind of faith that doesn't falter? That like this blind man before the most powerful men in Israel. And you're willing just to say, he's a prophet. He's sent from God. Willing to make that. How do we get that kind of faith? Well, it has to be tested. That's why we have to go through trials. A young person, a young child in the faith will not have that kind of courage. So it must, it must be tested. And oftentimes, have you noticed that through our trials and through the things that we go through, oftentimes Jesus seems nowhere to be found. It's like we're left all alone. But once our trial is over, the Lord makes his presence known and gives us comfort, and we'll see that next week. Are you going through a trial? Well, here's the, here's the thing. Either you're going through now one now, you just came out of one, or you're going one into one shortly. And the reason we do that, we face trials, the Scripture tells us, that we are to count it all joy when that happens because God is at work in us to shape us, to form us, to get us ready to make that good confession, to stand firm in the faith for the glory of God. And remember, God's trials, he'll never give us too much more than we can handle. And also, that always, even if it hurts, God is sending these trials for our benefit and ultimately for his glory. We've all been through it. It's hard, though, isn't it? Even as parents, it's hard to watch your kids go through the trials. It's hard. But you know that it's for their benefit and for the glory of God because God is in control. And it strengthens our faith and it increases our witness to the world just like this blind man.
And it's to show that the gospel is indeed the power of God into salvation, right? How can the world ever see the difference if we're not tested in front of them? How could they see it? Just think of it. Stephen, willing to be stoned to death, right? He's confessing it. Before these, some of these same people, he's confessing Christ. And, and guess who's standing there? Holding coats, looking on with approval as Stephen is being stoned to death. Who's standing there? Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul. Did Stephen know that his being stoned to death was going to be one of the uh, ways that God used to convert one of the greatest Christian minds and Christian followers the world has ever seen? Did, did Stephen know that? No. But don't you think now he certainly approves of that and is glad that God used that? So we never know how God's going to use it. But what we do show the world in the midst of our suffering and trials and willingness to stand is that the gospel really does change lives. And it is an important witness to the world that we are ready to die, to suffer, whatever it takes, to stand for the Lord. So the gospel is true. The gospel does change lives. I hope that you have trusted Christ, if you've experienced that transformation that happens. If not, I would encourage you to believe and trust in him this morning. And also, if your faith is shallow, pray that the Lord would strengthen it and be ready to go through trials, knowing that the testing of your faith will produce patience and character and hope. So we're grateful to the Lord who gives us his word, who strengthens us, even in the story of a blind man.